Free ball in here, talking, not in real life, <laughs> not going commando. Yeah. But anyway, welcome, you lovely, beautiful, sexy listeners, to another episode of the Gems of History podcast. I am your co-host Evan Roosh, and with me, as always, looking just peachy, we have Jacob Shop. I've noticed that your intros are like way more complimentary. <laughs> Mine usually, I'm usually just like, "Hey, what's up? It's the show. Right. Welcome back." <laughs> and yours are just like, "Oh my gosh, you guys are ten out of 10 I'm literally just staring into your eyes, just calling you so hot <laughs> in the straightest way possible. <laughs> Two guys sitting five feet apart in a basement. <laughs> five feet apart. Man, I hope that a lot of people understood that Vine reference because that's so I'm important. I'm pretty sure we've said it like 16 times on this show. So if they don't have it by now, right. then they haven't been paying close enough attention. It's that Vine as well as the, all right, Travis, you can do this. Make them wait for it. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't understand either of those references, you're either, I think you're just too young. I think just so many people our age and above understand what Vine was. Yeah. Do you, remember, you know what I remember the other day was... Damn, Daniel, back at it again with the white vans. I heard that that kid got like screwed over for thousands of dollars. Oh, I'm sure, because from... he was supposed to get like millions of bucks for like a like whatever deal yeah. or advertising deal or something. Yep, and he apparently he got in with like a terrible talent agent. Also, this is all alleged, so I man don't want the damn Daniel kid to. Uh, <laughs> I mean, hey, to, if he wants to, to come on the us. podcast. That Talk would, about it. That'd be a tremendous first uh, guest appearance. <laughs> and now an internet micro-celebrity. <laughs> for he was month. famous seven years ago for wearing shoes. Right. <laughs> he's, he's not even the one doing the funny thing. It's his friend. Man, always have to give credit to the people yeah. behind the camera. His friend just didn't get anything. <laughs> and then Daniel's just like, I'll take it. I hope that he just got a voiceover deal. Like, he's a voice actor now. That'd be incredible. That would be cool. I mean, silky smooth voice, but... You know what else is incredible? Do you want me to start complimenting you again? No, I was just going to say these these weird stories that we got to tell today are pretty incredible. Yes, so this week we have something a little bit different for you guys instead of one very just kind of... I don't even want to say very in-depth story. We have just kind of a couple of quick hits for you. Are you saying that the Montauk Project wasn't an in-depth story? <laughs> Well, no, I'm saying that wasn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's five books around that bad That boy. is true. And we only did an out. Yeah. You maybe... know what? That'll be our first edition of the Gems of History book club. Just all five of those. All five. Oh, God, I don't want to read four more of those. I just, I'm just so curious on where the story goes. I mean, I know that the fifth one is about like ancient pyramids underneath the desert or something like oh, that. Oh, sure. So it goes everywhere, I guess. I feel like the first three books are just going to be retelling the same story in yeah. like three different ways with different like varying little details. But anyways, that's not what we're talking about today. Just real quick, I'm just picturing the fifth one, like Avengers Endgame, like that scene where it's like Avengers Assemble when all the portals open up. <laughs> I'm just picturing the fifth one. It's that, but it's all the people that they just lost in like the... It's my- a bunch of hobos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bunch of homeless people coming out of these portals to i don't know fight a big hairy monster oh all right that is some comedy 
That is really funny. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're today, as Evan said, we're doing some mini stories. Yes. So a couple of quick hitter uh, mini stories of just honestly doing just the quick amount of research that I did on the stories. Absolutely preposterous that these these things happened. I mean, these are straight up gems of history. Yeah. Like little baby diamonds. Let's call them like four carat. <laughs> 24 carat magic in the air. air. Do we get copyrighted at all? We could. So I'm not going to sing anymore. I think, honestly, the biggest thing in show business, and I'm calling our podcast a part of show business, you ain't made it until you get sued. So we'll have to just have a bottle of champagne. Our podcast gets sued by Bruno, Bruno Mars's Mars. talent agency. <laughs> like, Yeah, we have seven listeners. and he has Bump us those numbers. That would be pretty incredible. We're going to have to sell all our recording equipment to pay for the legal fees, but... Well, all the episodes we have out now will be <laughs> bumped up. Right. I mean, there's no such thing as bad pu- publicity. That's true. But anywho, we do have some great stories for you, uh, ranging from, you know, something's to have a sci-fi movie, two things to have a sci-fi movie. Uh, One was made into a sci-fi movie. Yeah. <laughs> we have a little bit of the Confederacy coming back, as well as a trial that is Probably one of the most outrageous things I've read to date doing this podcast. But with that little foreshadowing, I say let's just dive on in. Let's go. Give give the people what they want, as they they, say. What they tuned into. So the first sci-fi story we'll start with. In the 19th century, it was very common for the brains of geniuses to be preserved so that scientists could actually determine the origin of a person's intelligence. And if you remember, the most famous scientist of this time was one Albert Einstein. You may have heard of him. I mean, we talked about him quite a bit last week. You know, he's just the father of modern... Oh boy, I've I had mean, myself he, in the, in the he corner. He came up with theoretical like physics pretty much. So. Yeah, he basically was like, you know what? What's pretty metal? Like black holes. Yeah. And then we found them. Um, another example of this was that half of the brain of Charles Babbage, who was the inventor of the first computing machine, is still on display at the Hunterian Museum at London's Royal College of Surgeons. Now, Albert Einstein was extremely aware that scientists would want to study his brain after he passed away. Um, I want, That is very curious, just considering Einstein wasn't proven right till a long time after he was passed, so maybe they were... Maybe it was just like a joke brain study. They were like, ah, let's see why this man's so crazy. <laughs> but uh, Einstein, while he was still alive, explicitly forbade it because he wanted his brain to, you know, stay in his head, yeah. stay in his noggin. Um, especially because he knew that such studies barely, or excuse me, rarely produce any useful information. Like the technology wasn't there. I mean, we still yet. barely have technology to understand the brain. We like, can still only use 10% of this bad boy. I mean, use 10% of it to put on the show. So <laughs> if that, yeah, you guys get full effort except for that Lizzie Borden episode. But uh, nevertheless, when Einstein passed at the Princeton hospital on April 18th, the pathologist who examined him, one Dr. Tom Harvey, Decided to remove the brain on his own initiative for further study. Yeah, he was not told to do this in any way. No, like explicitly told, do not remove the brain, leave the brain in there. And 
Dr. Harvey here said, you know what would actually be sick? This though? sign can't stop me because I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a whole lot of tell me what to do. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Harvey took Einstein's brain home. So let me read that again. He took it home from the hospital of the father of modern physics. Ah, uh, a nice mantelpiece. <laughs> and divided it into 240 pieces and stuffed it them all those pieces into two mason jars filled with soloidin. Talk about brain games trying to put that thing back together. Hey. <laughs> Maybe he just wanted, like, he was sick of, like, all the other puzzles that he had already completed. And he's like, <laughs> I, I want something difficult. Right. He just got done with a picture of a brain. He was like, you know what? It would be kind of sick. <laughs> and the first guy that plops onto his table is Albert Einstein. Right. Like, look at that. Who'd have thunk? But shortly after Einstein was cremated, his son Hans Albert found out about the theft and was absolutely furious. But somehow, Dr. Harvey actually convinced Einstein's son to let him keep the brain. Now, I don't have any additional information like what that conversation was like, but I can't imagine just put, being put I'll, in that situation. I'll arm wrestle you for it. Right. Oh, my gosh. Harvey's actually just somehow jacked. <laughs> hey, maybe he's, he ate- he's going against Albert Einstein's son. Yeah. So I'm not going to try and say that Albert Einstein's son is... Probably not the strongest man in the world, right. but he comes from a family of very smart people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, do the stereotype of, oh, he's wearing glasses. He might uh, not have any, not be ripped, as I'm looking at you with glasses on. <laughs> hey, I'm not ripped either, but... <laughs> hey, do I need to call you sexy again? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I am just so confused on what that conversation must have been. Like, I have your dad's brain. It's mine. I already Finders cut it keepers. up. Yeah. He's like, ah, I use my slap chop on this. <laughs> He's just there like, da, 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 da. anyway, uh, Dr. Harvey did not get away with this. Uh, basically taking the brain of the world's most famous physicist without, perf- or excuse me, without permission had extreme professional consequences for Dr. Harvey. No. Who would have thunk that, uh, <laughs> People wouldn't go to a doctor that would, that's just stealing brains. Uh, he soon lost both his job at Princeton Hospital and lost his marriage and then moved to the Midwest where he took a series of jobs either practicing medicine or running research, research labs. He kept Einstein's brain for the next several decades, at one point storing it in a cider box underneath a beer cooler. What if, you, what if you're going on a weekend holiday and you accidentally <laughs> grab that instead of the beer cooler? He's like, crack open a cold. Oh, never right. mind. Man, IPAs are getting really funky. <laughs> <laughs> They're starting to put this pink stuff in there. Yeah, why is it so you know chunky? Is this a new hops recipe? <laughs> I've recently heard that they decided to add more hops. But uh, he's still hoping to unlock the secret of Einstein's intelligence. The fate of Einstein's brain was actually unknown until 1978, when a reporter tracked Dr. Harvey down in Wichita, Kansas. The following magazine article that was written by the reporter about Dr. Harvey brought a flood of requests for samples of the brain to study, and starting in 1985, scientists began publishing their findings. Many of the studies did claim to find some differences between Einstein's brain and that of a normal person, 
but they also lacked the representative control, so basically a dum-dum's brain, if you will, uh, to actually make their findings, you know, make sense. Because it's not just common practice to chop up a brain into 240 pieces yeah. on the reg. People usually don't appreciate that. Um, and even if these studies were conducted more effectively, neurology still hasn't determined whether the physical structures of the brain actually affect a person's intelligence. So basically, we still have no idea if, you know, one part of my brain blob is the reason why I can't, you know, say any names right. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, the the most that we pretty much know is that, like, pre, like if you have a smaller prefrontal or less active prefrontal cortex i think you're just more inclined to be aggressive and stuff right that's like a serial killer thing that's why a lot of them have head injuries because they suffered some sort of damage to that area of their brain Mm -hmm. but like we really don't know what makes other people smarter than a certain like it, it a normal person so right there's probably so many different elements that go into that you know could even be how they were raised yeah you know, one, like, scarring traumatic event, and, oh, and now I'm dumb. Sorry, you're going to be bad at life now. Yeah, them's the rules. One thing happens, and you're done. Sorry. Whoops. So, that's the conclusion of the Einstein Einstein's brain theft. I mean, I feel like this needs to be, like, Ocean's One. The brain bungle. The brain bungle. <laughs> <laughs> the great Featuring John has... Harvey. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Harvey. Ah, whatever. Yeah. Well, now that we got that brain teaser out of the way. That was beautiful. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a little story known as the Battle of Los Angeles. <gasps> Not the major motion picture that was made in like 2013, but oh, the actual the, event. Is that one with like, that's when aliens invade. Correct? Yeah. Wow. Wow, you're giving away all the secrets. Whoops. But for this story, we're going to go back, way back to 1942, where nothing bad's going on and the world is in total harmony, other than a small, teeny, tiny world war. Um, That's eh, it. People forgot about it already. We're trying to run it back. America had just entered into the conflict, uh, because this is only a sh- couple short months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese, and that was kind of the first instance of attack on American soil. And it wouldn't be the last supposed attack on American soil, but the next one was going to take place in Los Angeles. So, this time, the enemy was unknown. It was supposed to be the Japanese again, but do we really know that it was? Well, let's, let's find out if we can piece this puzzle together. So, America was very on edge after the attack at Pearl Harbor, which killed over 2,000 Americans in less than two hours. So, the entire country was physically and mentally getting themselves prepared for another invasion of mainland America. And it was around this time FDR gave the order to start rounding up Japanese citizens, throwing them in camps. A lot of not good stuff. But that started on February 19th. And a few days later, a Japanese sub actually did open fire on an oil refinery near Santa Barbara, California. But luckily, that refinery had already been closed, and the submarine barely hit it, so the damage was very minimal. But reports afterwards said, like, if they weren't, if they didn't have bad intel and bad targeting, they probably could have crippled production for like a couple months. So this could have been very bad if they had done a better job. That's just the classic like war story. Like it was so close to just yeah. breaking like our entire production line. Pretty much. So five days or uh, a day after 
this attack around 24 hours after, to be specific. At 7.18 p.m. on February 24th, uh, radar on the coast of California picked up objects more than 100 miles off the coast moving towards L.A. So they sounded a yellow alert, but after the all-clear was given three hours later, everything was supposedly clear, but that peace was only to last for about four more hours, and around 2.25 a.m. on the 25th, a blackout order was given for the entire city of L.A. So all of the lights in L.A. went out, and suddenly a barrage of artillery lit up the sky, along with giant searchlights going from the ground into the air. And it was reported that there were potential enemy threats picked up on the radar, and then the radio call came to fire, so everyone started lighting up the sky with anti-aircraft fire. So it's 2.30 in the morning in L.A., everyone's sleeping peacefully, and all of a sudden, they're not. They hear pop, 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 <laughs> literally. So people are coming out of their houses to watch the events unfold, like literally just watching artillery fire. It was this the Midwest when a tornado is hitting? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. All of these citizens are like, oh, look at the pretty lights. <laughs> I mean, I guess what are you going to do? You're not just going to sit there and like do nothing. But right. also, I feel like you should be prepared if there's an attack. Yeah, I'd imagine... Like- World War II London was constantly getting bombed and everyone had a bomb shelter. Yes. That's honestly a little funny to think that Los Angeles, LA, people from LA, yes. that. people from LA were just looking out like it was the 4th of July. Oh, so nice. Ooh. Except they're all just, just not different colors. It's literally just the same one, kind of a little boring. Yeah. So after around 1,400 rounds were fired, the all-clear sign was given at 7.21 a.m., almost five hours after the chaos had begun. Jeez. That's how long the artillery is firing for. So, after everything had transpired, cleanup began, and it was found that there was no planes that had been shot down, and luckily, nobody was really hit by the rogue artillery. However, it was found that five people had died due to car accidents, getting distracted while they were driving their cars, and a couple people had heart attacks from all of the chaos going on. Oof. There's also unexploded artillery rounds that had been found in people's yards and driveways, as well as in a golf course nearby, and three people were lucky enough to be outside watching while the shells or fragments hit their beds inside of their homes. Oh my gosh, that's insane. So these people are, thank their lucky stars that they were just, out stargazing at this artillery fire. And then it came a little too close to home, quite literally. Literally. So after this had all transpired, there was more Japanese Americans that got arrested for supposedly signaling to these enemy attackers that still haven't been found. But it was found that none of the damage that was done to the city was done by anything other than the defensive fire from the American artillery. So... As of right now, it's looking like there was no enemy and all of this was for nothing. Kind of a outrageous accusation to just uh, accuse these several Japanese Americans for signal- signaling enemy attackers on the like who they were on the ground. I can't imagine how you would signal a plane, you know, thousands of yeah, feet above during like, a blackout. Right, like no, I have a flashlight. Try to hit this. Like what? That's just not how. Right. That's uh, you can kind of get a little bit of a hint of. It's- Anti-Japanese-American resentment at this time in America, especially. So, there are some reports that came out after the events had taken place that claimed that it was some sort of weapons test, while others claimed that they saw, quote, object, an object or objects 
that was slow moving and that was caught up in the center of the spotlights from the ground. Other witnesses stated that they may have seen up to hundreds of planes. So either our artillery is terrible or these pilots are just like the best at flying in the world. Right. Who did we have on these guns? I mean, there was statements afterwards saying like there was people who did reports on the quality of our defensive setup on Mm -hmm. that coast during this time period. And they all said like, this is abysmal. Like you guys are not prepared at all. So, I mean, it wasn't good. Yeah. But. At the same time, 1,400 rounds, you better at least hit something. Just not even a pigeon was struck. Yeah, so not looking good. So the government continued to confuse the public even further when Navy Secretary Frank Knox stated that it was a false alarm and that there were no planes, just some jittery soldiers. Who shot for five hours. Five hours and 1,400 rounds later. Yeah, like 14 artillery rounds. Those are big guns. But the Western Defense Command, the group that was on the ground in L.A., claimed that there were unidentified aircraft over L.A. for several hours. So I'm going to read the specific quote from one of the reports at the time. More specific public information should be forthcoming from government sources on the subject, if only to clarify their own so far conflicting statements about it. Apparently, the Army's information was that enemy planes were here and preparing for an attack then or later. Accordingly, it blacked out, started searchlights, opened fire, and kept on firing for a long time. Secretary Knox's information, he says, is that there were no planes at all and the whole thing was a false alarm. On this basis, he apparently predicates expression of a belief that such things will make it necessary to move, remove Pacific Coast War Industries inland. The reasoning is at least extraordinary. If there were no planes and no danger, wherein does this particular incident in any way support the theory that our great aircraft industry should be moved inland? So well, everyone is pretty, well done. First and foremost, everyone is pretty much just like, "What does this need to be like? Why are we doing anything if there is no attack?" Right. Like, not only did we already bombard our own airspace, but like, why are we going to move our aircraft industry further inland if nothing actually attacked us? Right. The greatest threat came from our guns. Yeah, <laughs> we're <laughs> shooting we at before. ourselves. Right, and they ruined a great golf course, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> So, to make matters worse, there were even more reports a few days later that American planes flew into action as well, as many as 15 of them. So, now there are people saying that not only were we shooting artillery rounds, but we were also flying fighter planes into this fray, and none of them apparently got hit either. So, one of the best evidences for something being in the sky that night is a now famous photo of converging spotlights with what appears to be some sort of aircraft in the middle, but... It's so bright in the center of these spotlights that you can't really tell, but all of the spotlights are focused on the same point, and it does look like there might be something in there. So, this is where people get the idea that this may have been a UFO, or now, as we like to call them, UAPs. So, UFOlogists fully subscribe to the idea that there was some sort of extraterrestrial craft over Los Angeles that night, which would explain the slow movement while apparently being able to take direct hits from artillery as well as the fact that something showed up on radar with radar without anything actually being shot down. So, they say this evidence is further supported by apparent declassified files from Army Chief of Staff George Marshall, in which he stated, the mystery airplanes were not earthly and of interplanetary origin, but this document, as with anything in UFO culture, is highly disputed. 
right? There's never been a document that just clearly lays out what exactly happened. Yeah, until last year or two years ago when the Pentagon finally admitted like, yeah, we we don't know what some of this stuff is. Right. Like, that's the first time, I think, that something's been like, nice. That is really crazy. So when, just to clarify, when was Rod, like the Roswell incident? Was that? That was like 47 or 48. So this is. This is a couple years five, before that. Yeah, like over five years before that. Which is really interesting because I'm just trying to put it in perspective of people that first saw this. Like we literally have no idea what was in, <clears throat> excuse me. We literally have no idea what was in the sky. And there hasn't even been like a Roswell incident yet, which was like one of the first. Right. Document, documented, whatever disputed like UFO sighting or just alien event. So this is just like completely brand new thing for everyone that's experiencing it. Like they literally have no idea what the heck just happened. And you can tell from like reading articles and stuff about this because people describe it as like a giant bicycle wheel that they saw in the sky that was glowing red and stuff. So there's still not even like the flying saucer moniker for any of this. They yet. thought it was the wicked, wi- wicked witch of the West. <laughs> yeah, it's just like flying through on a bicycle or whatever. Right. So official report on the incident is that a weather balloon was released with a red flare attached to it and that m- multiple of these weather balloons were shot at with some military witnesses stating they saw anywhere from 3 to 30 planes along with these weather balloons. Other explanations say that there perhaps were no planes, or perhaps there were planes, but they were privately piloted without authorization, which just means that we just started shooting at our own civilians. Yeah. So that's not good either. It was just a charter flight, like trying to get... uh good look at the city of la city of stars and- <laughs> yeah it's like a helicopter like tourist flight <laughs> right. and they're just getting shot at right. oh, experiencing a little turbulence folks our government is shooting at us. everyone's screaming so no pilots were ever found and no japanese aircraft carriers were in the area so that kind of gets rid of the idea that there was japanese planes but there, uh, another idea that involved the japanese was japanese incendiary bo- balloon bombs but those weren't employed until 1944 for the first time. So that kind of rules that one out. So it seems as if the weather balloon theory may be the only one that holds some weight. Because as people have pretty much dedu- like deduced from doing all the research, the balloons would have reflected the lights that got shot up into the sky. There was a, f- a big fog in between when artillery started firing. So it could have been misidentified. And the red flares would explain the red lights that some witnesses claimed. And as for why they weren't shot down, some people say that because these balloons were lifting and moving laterally in the air, it would have just been a more difficult target to track. But <laughs> 1,400 I, rounds. Yeah, <laughs> I just feel like that's going to get there's something's going to hit one of those eventually. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure even he, like Helen Keller is like knocking this bad boy down yeah. if that's the case. And as far as I could tell from all of the things I watched and read, there was no balloons that were ever found in anyone's yards or anything. So either they just found them and never said anything, or there was nothing ever shot down, which is what I believe is more accurate because no one ever says there was anything shot down. Right. It's hard to cover up a big old balloon in someone's yard. Yeah. So whatever it was in LA that night, we may never know. Perhaps there was nothing at all and it was just a bunch of anxious military personnel who got a a bit trigger happy and caused one of the biggest military blunders on US soil. Or maybe it was an alien aircraft that was just kind of hovering there ominously. 
but it was alien tourists just Jeez. trying to see the city. Yeah, of stars. Right. Oh, don't worry about that, son. The protective field will protect us from these artillery the, shells. The alien tour guide. It's like, oh, it looks like the humans are a little jumpy today. We yeah. have to back up a little bit. They get a little edgy. They just want. We, we just came here to see all the lights. Now all the lights are out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's just an alien mom and dad demanding their money back yeah. for this crappy trip. <laughs> So it's most likely that this was kind of just trigger-happy soldiers that the radar had a faulty readout because radar still was not great at the time. And then once someone gave the signal from a different location, then it was either misconstrued or taken way too literally and everyone started shooting. But yeah, that's the Battle of L.A. <laughs> we'll never know who won. <laughs> that's just like the War of 1812. Definitely not the citizens of L.A. <laughs> yes. People's houses are just destroyed. I can't imagine wake... Like, I was pissed when I woke up to eggs on my yard. I can't imagine how mad I would be if there was just an artillery shell. Just in your, like, driveway. <laughs> right. Casually right next to my car. Unexploded. So you're just like, oh, that could just be deadly. <laughs> I think if you go out the door and you see a artillery shell, like an unexploded one, just chilling there, like, you immediately just go back to bed. Yeah. If that's me, I... I'm walking out, getting in my car to go to my work, and you just go, like, you turn right around, like, you take a sick day, you take a artillery shell day. It's Your boss should understand. I don't have time to deal with this. Absolutely not, no. Well, that was amazing. That was, that's, it's a story, that's it's, for sure. <laughs> some shenanigans. The pictures are cool, though. You should look them up. They're fun. If only video, can you imagine Twitter? If Twitter was oh, around, God. I think about that all the time, like historical events, like if Twitter was around, like imagine like when Rome burned to the ground, <laughs> just there's selfies of people yeah. and everything like, oh my God, look at this. We're running away from fire. <laughs> this this is so lit. Oh my goodness. Like that. Imagine like Mount Vesuvius erupting oh, like Thermopylae. It's like, oh, 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 oh. yeah, <laughs> man, that is crazy, but. On to our next story. So, another, or just to bring, since we were talking about World War II, a lot of you probably either from this podcast or from other history sources know that several members of the Third Reich, which of course is the infamous uh, party of one Adolf Hitler, uh, part of Germany, fled to South America after World War II to flee, per, not persecution, Basically getting caught for the shenanigans that they did. Yeah. However, my fellow Americans, did you know that thousands of Confederates actually did the same exact thing after <laughs> the American Civil War? So they caught the L, caught these hands from the Old North, and uh, immediately just kind of left the stadium, left the country. I don't want to play anymore. Yeah, they literally took their ball and went home. Or not home. Left. New home. <laughs> New home. So when the Civil War ended, uh, it's not really talked about like the South was in complete ruins. So, for example, Sherman on his campaign in the West executed what was known as like total war. So that meant he burned everything to the ground. He salted the fields. He did not do great things. Well, not just him specifically, his men as well. Uh, not great things uh, to the people that he conquered on his way down to the South. But the entire economy of the South was also just in shambles. Um, of course, they just lost their biggest workforce. Uh, so 
the entire South is in, in ruins. And rather than stay and help rebuild a now unified America that had recently abolished slavery, thousands of Southerners preferred to move to an entirely different country where slavery was still legal, which was most of South America, excuse me, which was most of South America at this time, but a majority of them flocked to Brazil in particular. Uh, That is because the Brazilian emperor at the time, Dom Pedro, supported the Confederacy during its brief run, uh, giving it free trade routes, not free trade routes, but beneficial trade terms, as well as just money in general. And he enticed Southerners who were looking to relocate to come to sunny Brazil uh, and basically buy up all of their cheap land as well as subsidize their economy with whatever gold that they had left. Uh, it's estimated that anywhere between 8,000 to 20,000 Southerners left the United States for other countries. And keep in mind, America is still like 20,000. Yeah, that's like decent. half the South. <laughs> yeah, that's a large number of people. Um, but like I mentioned, so like 20,000 Southerners left the United States for South America. Uh, most of them ending up in Brazil. Most of them chose Brazil specifically because they continued to want to enslave people. And so, the maracas. As well as the maracas. <laughs> I heard there's also great food yeah. in, in Brazil. But primarily the uh, whole wanting to enslave people thing. That was ah, their, uh, that little snafu. There was, that was their big driving motivator to uh, to pack up and... Go home, I guess. Or not home. It's never home. Not fun. No. Uh, for the Brazilian government's part, uh, American Southerners were very desirable because of the official policy. Now, this is real. An official policy from the Brazilian government to make a concerted effort to make the population more white. So they did this by enticing Europeans as well as Americans, specifically Southerners, to immigrate to Brazil. Now, this was done because, well, you know, racism. Uh, they wanted to make their people more white-looking. Were they, like, trying to get the sunscreen industry popping or what? I guess that was, they just had a stranglehold. Being on more white isn't good for that. Right. They just had a stranglehold on the sunscreen market and needed some customers. But they were basically trying to... They were basically just trying to make their population more white due to, or in order to get, you know, better trade and guidelines, or excuse me, better trade deals uh, with like European nations because, I mean, it's like a being, eugenics program. It like. is. It's, it's truly is a eugenics program. Um, basically, just to try to get their economy bumping because, let's face it, I mean, yeah. racism very prominent. Yeah, especially at this time period. So. Oh, yeah. This is, I mean, there were still colonies like all over the place, specifically the good old British Empire. But um, the southern immigrants were later called Confederados, which I have to give it to them as a strong name. It is. Very strong name. And they built five to six settlements across Brazil. Most of the Confederados found Brazil too hot and. <laughs> Which is just the most, like, white person thing of all time. It's a little hot under these lights, isn't it, Seinfeld? <laughs> no, I'm actually quite cool. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they also just were not getting the proper sunscreen, I'm sure. Um, 
as well as the soil just wasn't good for growing like yeah. the crops that they were growing in the south because you know rainforest much more tropical than the dry south of the american united states right who would have thunk that uh alabama and the amazon rainforest have different <laughs> different climates darn <laughs> who would have thunk I'm sure a lot of these guys probably got diseases from traveling down there, too. Oh, absolutely. It's just like a completely different area of the world. Right. And I'm sure the like poison frog. I'm just assuming that they were in the middle of the Amazon. <laughs> I, I'm sure they were like on the coast somewhere. But yeah. for the purpose of my brain, they were all like deep in the Amazon rainforest getting picked off by the local, like the local tribes that we still have yet to discover today. But so the crops weren't growing there. Um, as well as just why won't this corn grow on the beach? There's <laughs> just a starfish right next to a cob of corn. Like <laughs> a, one of these things. There's a don't dolphin belong. like jumping in the distance. <laughs> right. Even the dolphin is like that'll never grow there. <laughs> we should listen to those damn dolphins. <laughs> yeah, right. They are very wise. Also, don't go in the in the ocean with dolphins. <laughs> it will mess you up, but um, other confederados just simply failed to assimilate into Brazilian culture because imagine that they might have been a little too stubborn to adjust to new practices of a new people. Um, and then uh, finally, in 1888, Brazil outlawed slavery, and many of the confederados, Ooh. yeah, shout out Brazil, let's give them some snaps. That's it, though. They had it till 1888, they only get seven snaps. Um, a lot of the confederados then returned to the United States. However, a few hundred of them actually remained, specifically uh, in a town, uh, excuse me, specifically in a settlement known as Americana, which today actually has a abundance of descendants still living there, and is actually one of the larger cities in Brazil. And they still celebrate, not the entire town, but these particular people, confederados, are still there, still very active in Brazil, and still celebrates their confederate heritage today. Hey, some people in the South still celebrate here, so. <laughs> can the South even, can those people even claim to be from the Deep South anymore, knowing that there's just, like, deeper South yeah, right. in Brazil? Like, oh, you think you're Deep South? Oh, like, you, that's you're South-South. Oh, yeah, you are Southern-Southern. <laughs> they don't have, like gravy and biscuits we're so southern we're not even american (laughs) (laughs) they went deep yeah but that is the story of how thousands of confederates ended up in brazil we're assuming deep in the amazon rainforest and we're also assuming that they came back because they couldn't handle the hard pressing sun hey man and the dolphins giving them relentless shit One thing the dolphins done that's not negative. <laughs> yeah, that's not a little rapey. <laughs> yeah, dolphins are not good animals. No, don't let uh, don't don't let their cuteness fool fool you. Well, do you want to talk about cereal, Evan? I mean, always. <laughs> okay, good. I we're do going, have a good bowl. We're going to talk about Kellogg's, specifically John Harvey Kellogg. So, John Harvey Kellogg was a man born one of sixteen children. And six of his siblings passed away young due to, like, disease or what have you. And his parents didn't really think that education was very important because they were apparently Seventh-day Adventists. And they didn't see a need to teach their kids anything since the second coming of Jesus was coming pretty soon. So what good is it to learn things if you're just going to get taken to heaven anyways? 
<laughs> that I mean, I guess that it, the logic is there. Flawless logic. Yep. So why, why be smart when being dumb is quick? It, it, true and easy. However, John was pretty into reading, so he read as much as he could, and eventually he got the recognition of the church because they saw his potential and funded his way through medical school. So he was put at the head of the Health Reform Institute after he graduated from medical school and eventually founded a place known as Battle Creek Sanitarium, where it was pretty much a giant resort. I know the word sanitarium usually refers to insane people, as we know it now, but this was kind of just like a wellness resort for very wealthy people, like Henry Ford and presidents were going there. So it was a lot of focus on like getting enough sunlight, eating easily digestible foods, doing exercise, and this was all in John's focus of taking care of the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is one's own body. So, at this Battle Creek Sanitarium, he instituted rules for guests, such as chewing their food up to 40 times to liquefy it and make it easier to digest, following the tactics of a man named Horace Fletcher, who was known for his fad of excessive chewing. So that is so gross. It is. I can't. Oh, that is so gross. Like, it's just imagine having like, to count forty times for everything that you chew. I think my jaw would fall off. It would to be take honest. you so long to eat a meal. I would demand smoothies for my meals. Yeah. Like I am not. It turns out you actually have to like chew those. Chew the smoothies. Oh, I think there's a chunk of strawberry in there. Chew so you it forty get, times. Get a chomping. So John also decided to shut up, set up showers, which he filled with artificial light, a.k.a. light bulbs, which was supposed to heal any ailments if you stood in there long enough. I mean, he was all about getting enough sun, it's, so... Yeah, it's like a giant primitive tanning booth, pretty much, so... Well, I mean, I'm sure people got out of there. It's probably just a placebo thing as well. I yeah. Mean, in his mind, he was like, this is science. I just love that this is the time period where, like, everything is a miracle cure that does everything you need it to. He's the reason why essential oils are a thing, isn't he? <laughs> Pretty much. Now we just have people, like, slinging snake oil and having parties. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah, because he was born in 1852, so this is probably around, like, 1900 that a lot of this is happening. Dang. So, yeah, this is very much like primitive healing methods still. But, we, now, but the, now we have electricity, so we can use bulbs. Right. He saw the light bulb, or excuse me, he used the artificial light and was like, this is the coolest thing. Like, yeah. It has to be able to do a lot of things. Yeah, he was Thomas Edison's best friend. Right. <laughs> so, in addition to artificial light showers and excessive chewing, John also told people they needed to continue their treatments by getting enemas. Mm. So, for those of you that don't know what a wonderful procedure of an enema is, it involves flushing out one's bowels by sticking a tube up your butt and pumping salt water into your bowels through a tube, and then it flushes your system, apparently. So many questions, but question number one, like, how did he get to this point? Like, (sighs) at what point was he like, first off, light bulbs, great for the skin. Second off tube up the butt (laughs) yeah it starts off like pretty good like okay exercise get outside get a lot of sleep like relax eat eat good food Mm -hmm. and then it gets to excessive chewing and light bulb showers (laughs) then he goes straight to sticking tubes up people's ass well the thing is like he is working with mostly rich people and rich people are 
just the weirdest people yeah. of all. I think that's just a confirmed fact. Like, rich people are so weird. I'm sure all of them were just psyched to do this. Yeah. And like Henry Ford is just raising his hand <laughs> like, <laughs> vehemently like, no, me next. And it's funny because as we'll find out in a minute here, he was vehemently opposed to sex. So the fact that he was into sticking things up people's butts to clean out their system is just very like ironic that that's where he went. Hilarious. So John took these enemas even further by setting up a machine that could pump a whole 14 liters per minute of salt water up someone's butt. And sometimes he even encouraged people to take part in yogurt enemas in which they would eat half of the yogurt and then the other half would go up... uh, well, I think you can kind of get the idea. Yeah, this is absolute, like, first off, just rich people shit. But this is definitely, like, white people shit. Yeah. <laughs> but he was like, ah, all these protective germs will coat the inside of your bowels when you put the yogurt up your butt. So, didn't, I, I'm going to go out and say, didn't work. Just four, 14 liters. Think of a two liter bottle of Coke right now. Yeah. And times that by seven. And 60 seconds later, it's all going up your butt. Okay, question number two, like, how does, where does it go? <laughs> Only number two, it, I, it just gets flushed out, you take the two out. And Flush out? Like, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. Literally. I'm just picturing when the Lord of the Rings 2, when they break the dam. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, Exactly. It's just like when the ants took Isengard. Oh my God. I'm about to blow. <laughs> so you must think, well... Yogurt enemas, that's that's pretty extreme. It's you can't get that much weirder, right? Well well, John Kellogg was a certified psychopath. So he also set up a vibrating chair that people could sit on, and you're probably thinking, oh nice, a massage chair. But this was literally just a wooden chair that you would sit on and would vibrate up to sixty times a second. And sometimes if you wanted the added bonus option you could get paddled while you did it. So you could literally sit on a chair that shakes you while you get smacked by a paddle. Like in the face? Or yeah. In the, or is this like it would literally just slap man? you. So that's another thing you could do. I don't really know what the purpose behind that was, but the biggest no-no on John's list was, as I mentioned earlier, having sex. So he himself was celibate for his entire marriage, which was like 40 years long. And on his honeymoon night, he apparently wrote about the dangers of sexual intercourse instead of having sex with his wife. And he also (laughs) believed that masturbation could cause epilepsy, poor eyesight, and just bad health in general. So that was also outlawed in the Battle Creek (laughs) sanitarium grounds. So... He was like, I need to figure out a way to get rid of people's urge to masturbate and participate in sexual urges. So, he would offer to tie your hands up to stop you from touching yourself. And these first few are going to be mainly about men. So, if that didn't work, he would just literally put a wrap around your penis (laughs) or put it in a cage. <laughs> so you physically could not touch your penis. I mean, this man. Oh, I most certainly do not buy the forty years of marriage without having sex. But this man is just so into PDSM that he's, he doesn't even. He's know. so weird. Like, 
Going back to the wooden chair, was there just like a person that would just whack you with a paddle? No, it was like a, a, machine, a machine that he made that would just like spin around and whack you. That's something straight out of a... Okay. Like, wow. he was a smart guy. Like, he was one of the best medical doctors in America at the time. Like, he was well-respected. All his books have been translated into multiple languages. But... This is a... Yeah. Hilarious that you said, but... <laughs> ah. Oh, my gosh. So, that's, that's insane. So, we're going to keep talking about penises for a second here, and it's going to get a little graphic. So, if you don't want to hear that, you can just, like, skip ahead a minute and a half or so, if you don't want to hear about it. But... If putting it in wraps and then subsequently in a cage didn't work, he would even circumcise people if they couldn't behave, and most of the time he encouraged doing it without anesthetic, because then people would associate pain with their penises and would then not touch themselves anymore. And if that didn't work, he would take their remaining foreskin, sew it over the tip of their penis, and twist it closed with a metal wire, thus not allowing them to get erections. Tom, were people here by choice? Yeah. That is, without a doubt, the weirdest thing I've ever heard on this podcast. I know. And this is the guy that's name is on your cereal boxes. Oh, Kellogg's. Kellogg's, Kellogg's, Kellogg's. No, no, no. After that, he decided, well, I could do this on women, too. Oh, by the way. A lot of that was done on young boys. Yeah, so, that's just about right. That's, that's par for the course. Yeah, so this guy's not a good guy, if you couldn't figure that out already. How was the... Okay, I'm going to let you finish before I get into the questions. So he didn't forget women, and his Happy method... International Women's Day, hey. Yeah, right? <laughs> his methods for women were no better. He poured what was known as carbolic acid on their genitals and sometimes would even surgically remove their clitoris to stop them from diddling with themselves. So I was not ready for you. Did not give me enough warning for this. I told you it didn't get any. It got like way weirder than vibrating chairs and enemas. So where does one just get acid? Well, I guess he's a doctor. <sighs> yeah, he's so he got probably is, But on the oh my gosh. So the best way in his mind to avoid sexual urges was not all of this <laughs> surgery, but it was actually. That people just needed to have a more bland breakfast. <laughs> and you may have heard rumors on like a Snapple fact that John Kellogg created cornflakes to stop people from masturbating, which I can now tell you is true. He was just shook whenever someone was cooking bacon. He was like, <laughs> Literally, this, is, this is the Lord or this is the devil's work. Because I got most of this information from a video by the channel Thoughty2, which he talks about all of this. And he says like, yeah, at the time, porridge was a big breakfast meal, like bacon and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, well, we can't be having that. So I'm going to make my own breakfast. So he decided to make these very bland breakfast biscuits out of like oats and stuff that were so hard because he baked them twice to make them easier to digest that they literally were breaking people's teeth when they tried to eat them. And then after that, he just decided to break them up into smaller bits, creating like kind of a granola. And so that was the next step. And this whole time, his brother, Will, Will Kellogg, is pretty much his assistant. And it was said that Will was working like, up to 100 hours a week for his brother, pretty much like just being abused by him by getting overworked. Mm -hmm. And so Will was in charge of making a batch of dough for these biscuits or granola. And 
he left it out overnight accidentally. And so he came back the next day, decided to still use it. And since it was left out, when he baked it, it became these really thin flakes, which then became the famous Kellogg's cornflakes. So technically, his brother was the one that created them, but it was John's ideas that led to it. So there, there's the beginning of the Kellogg's cornflakes company. <laughs> next time you're, I think next time you guys are at the grocery store, just take a picture of one of their cereals and send it to our, like, <laughs> just reply to like our Twitter or Instagram post that we do in accordance with this episode. Just, just add it to the thread and there's, and there's caption it with "If you know, you know." <laughs> yes, that's yes, that's one hundred percent. Do it, please. So Will decided to work with his brother now on this new creation that they had together, and. Eventually, since it was becoming such a popular breakfast item, Will wanted to add sugar to make them even tastier, even though they were already popular. And John was like, no, we can't make them fun. That would encourage sex. So so Will decided to set out on his own. He created his own company. It was like the Cornflakes Company or something like that. I did not write down the name. But he eventually sued his brother John for the rights to the Kellogg name. John sued him back, and eventually Will won and started the Kellogg Cereal Company. So John continued his own attempts at a bland breakfast, but eventually his fame as a doctor and the proprietor of Battle Creek Sanitarium subsided when the Kellogg name became more associated with the Corn Flakes Company and not his wellness retreat. So John Harvey was pretty much wallowing in debt after this legal battle, and his resort's visitors declined during the Great Depression. So he closed the resort in 1938 with a very crippling $3 million of debt in 1938, which is probably like $50 million of debt today. And just a trail of penises everywhere. (laughs) I, I guess so. So, four years after that, he died of pneumonia at the age of 91. So, yeah, the, the name of that you see on some of those cereals at your house, yeah, that guy was a certified psychopath. This is, without a doubt, probably one of my favorite gems of history. That yeah. we ta- I told you I was insane. excited to get to this one, because it's just insanity. It just kept on getting crazier and crazier every single yeah. like, sentence that you spoke. Because it starts off so, like, okay, they're just doing, like weird tests on different primitive healing methods to try and figure out what works and then he's just like oh boy have i got a lot in store right you read off chew 40 times or chew their food 40 times in my head i was like oh gosh this guy sounds like a bit extra and then yeah you thought enema was gonna be the weirdest thing i was gonna say that whole time nope and then you said cut off foreskin and sew it onto the tips yep Zoink, Scoop. We are having a lot of fun today. <laughs> Just unbelievable. But we Honestly. got two more stories for you. That we, I, we do. It's going to be interesting to follow that one up. But I, wow. I was going to save it for last, but I was, like, ah. for last. I, I was like, well, we might get run, run long on time. So I want to get this out in the, into the world first. The, the world needed to hear that story. <laughs> But the, yes, the, the title of the video was Meet the Psychopath Who Invented Your Breakfast. <laughs> I was like, yeah, afterwards, that's a very accurate title. Very spot on. I can't imagine what the thumbnail to the video was. I think it's just a picture of John Kellogg and then the cornflakes, but yeah, Ugh. crazy. So a little bit more of a goofy one for y'all. Not saying that Mr. Kellogg wasn't goofy himself. <laughs> that's one way to put it. 
But we're going to go back in time to one of the most famous court trials in history. So, in 897 AD, the Vatican saw one of the most bizarre court trials in history. The corpse of a, excuse me, the corpse of a pope who recently passed away was actually put on trial by his living successor. What did you do to those children? <laughs> right. <laughs> Even at 897, they were up to their usual hijinks. Oh, it's probably worse back then. Oh, gosh, yeah. Those. Eesh. I mean, people were <laughs> legally getting married at the age of like 12. So, and by people, I mean women were being forced to get yeah. married. <laughs> <laughs> to probably like 30, probably like 40 year olds. Yeah. It's kind of crazy that like 40 year olds were like considered grandpas back then. But I digress. Pope Formosus, who was already dead. Strong name, though. Very strong. Hope, yeah, truly, like, names are incredible back in the day. Now we got John. Now we got, you know, <laughs> I almost just buried someone that I know first. <laughs> I almost just buried them. Yeah, but now we just have very bland names. Uh, Kellogg's before they added the sugar type of names. Sure. That. <laughs> yes. But uh, Pope Formosus, who had been dead for a couple months, um, was brought to trial by his successor, Pope Stephen VI. He had the, so Pope Stephen VI had the body dug up, dressed in full papal robes, so made him, dressed him up to the nines. Slay. Slay. Fashion is his passion. And then... Pope Formosus, again, dead for nine months, was propped up on the papal throne to stand trial from Pope Stephen VI. Well, sit trial. That is true. For legal reasons, he was allowed to sit down. <laughs> they weren't that for, mean. For legal reasons. <laughs> I wonder if they made them like what they made them swear on. Because you know how in today you swear on the Bible? Yeah. I wonder if they were like, well, technically we're God's representative, so I swear on... Me? <laughs> right. How do you even accuse a pope? Never mind. We're going to do a deep dive in the Catholic religion. I mean, one, one king tried to do that and he got excommunicated and almost got killed outside of the church. So, right. Yeah. He just prayed to the pope for like three days. Like, please take me back. Yeah. Talk about a clingy in ex. a snowstorm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just give me some space. Yeah. You're kind of a lot right now. I'm folk. The Pope was literally like, I'm focusing on my career right now. <laughs> I have no time for you. I need me time. Yeah, I need just to figure it out myself. But uh, Pope Stephen, so the accuser, even appointed a deacon, which is equivalent to a lawyer, to speak for Pope Formosus. Again, the dead man. Do you think he actually like took his call? He's like, I'm innocent. <laughs> he did a puppet. <laughs> he put his hand in like the ribcage. And <laughs> I didn't do it. But uh, well, he was Italian, so I didn't do it. In the <laughs> Scully's <French>. even, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the in the Scully's even doing like the Italian hand gesture. Yeah. Uh, while Stephen the Sixth hurled these accusations at Formosus, and we'll get to the accusations in a little bit, um, the accused, as you can imagine, because a dead man, uh, remained stoically silent. As you might expect, again, from it, a dead man. It would be much more surprising if he wasn't. <laughs> right, if he just came back to life. I would just acquit him at that point. <laughs> right. Be like, like, yeah, you're good. Yeah, you may not even just be Pope. You may just be, like, God at this point. Yeah. 
only other person to do it was JC, so. But uh, in the words of the historian George Ives, and I quote here, the old man's body, like a monstrous doll, might nod and bend while the attendants supported it, or collapse in a ghastly bundle whenever they left it alone. And this is where they got the idea for the movie Weekend at Bernie's. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what a classic flick. I would much rather see this just if this this was made into like some sort of comedy. Puppeteering the Pope? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, actually cut this. We need to make that like our own, our own movie. Okay. With that huge budget that we have. With our huge budget. Yeah, we were just talking about, like, me selling. Hey, we might have stickers coming soon, so that you can help us support our dream of making puppeteering the Pope. Yeah. But uh, to continue the quote, but the body made no sound. And the deacon would probably be wary in his defense, for there were dark holes nearby other than sepulchers. Basically saying, like, whatever the deacon that was appointed to defend the dead pope basically whatever he said was going to be used as like heresy which it was after the trial however in the middle of the trial an earthquake shook the vatican and the room that they were in which the commentators and the people that were attending the trial took as a clear sign from god and now here's another quote from some of the commentators, excuse me, from some of the people that were there. For the stones themselves, execrating such a monstrosity, they cried out with their own voice by knocking against each other that they would more willingly suffer spontaneous ruin than that the Roman church should remain depressed by so great a scandal. But if the stones cried out, Stephen VI paid them no mind. He persisted with his case, and the dead pope was found guilty of usurping the papacy. I think the earth was just like, give him back. <laughs> right. He's mine now. They were pissed. Like, he was delicious. Like, that's some fresh meat. <laughs> <laughs> the earth is like, I don't just go into your home and take your food. <laughs> yeah, right? Kind of rude. This dead man was found guilty. Stephen VI declared all of Pope Formosa's, excuse me, yes, Formosa's, all of his acts and decrees, null and void, all consecration, which meant all his consecrations, all appointments, all ordinations, they were all undone. So everything that Pope Formosus did was basically undone. Formosus's body was then stripped of its garments, and instead he was dressed up in rags. Darn. Three of his fingers which were the three fingers of doing the benediction, which you all can't see me right now, but I am doing. Three of the fingers were cut off, and the rest of the body was thrown into the Tiber River. So the earth still didn't get his body back. (laughs) Poseidon got him. (laughs) What is this? Um, Stephen's victory, however, did not last long. Within a few months, he himself was imprisoned and then strangled to death. Nice. (laughs) His reign as Pope lasted a little over a year. In that era, or excuse me, in this time period, being elected Pope was essentially receiving a death sentence. So the papacy was very much involved in local politics of the Holy Roman Empire. And basically, as soon as you were made the Pope, You were a target by any lord and any other person that was trying to be pope. 
Imagine Game of Thrones, except, you know, there was just a church hanging randomly. Yeah. Or, excuse me, a cross hanging, like, hanging on the wall randomly. Uh, a pope could put off the, this fate with some very skillful political maneuvering, but a majority of the times, it wasn't a good outcome. Mostly because the pope actually had the power, like the sole power, to crown the Holy Roman Emperor. Meaning that any new pope that was designated to be the pope was immediately placed, like I mentioned, into the Game of Thrones, quite literally. Yeah. Now, Stephen's successor, Romanus, lasted only 92 days. Romanus's successor, Theodore II, lasted less than three weeks. As for Formosus, his body was eventually plucked from the Tiber by a fisherman and returned to the tomb in St. Peter's Basilica. A chronicler, oh boy, Luid Prand of Cremona, wrote... He was afterwards found by fishermen and carried to the Church of the Blessed Prince of the Apostles. Certain images of the saints, with veneration, saluted him. He was placed in his coffin. I have very often heard from most religious men of the city of Rome that by throwing his, that by throwing his enemy in the Tiber, Stephen VI was taking part of an ancient tradition. So, for centuries, the Tiber River was where the ancient Romans disposed of their most famous criminals. The flow of the Tiber bore away the political rivals of all the emperors of Rome and early Christian martyrs. It carried away the bodies of reviled emperors condemned to damnation and was even, according to some legend, the place where Pontius Pilate met his ignominy. It's even, according to some legends, the place where Pontius Pilate met his end. For thousands of years, the Tiber was where you threw anyone you wanted to permanently exile from life, society, and memory. Now, you're probably asking at home, as well as my co-host is probably very much asking, so, uh, why? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that is kind of the question here, huh? It is a very, a very curious case we have on our hands. I'm just, I'm just picturing like the Law and Order theme song, and then like produced by like executive producer Dick Wolf. <laughs> so you're 100% asking why. So to understand this, you have to also, we have to also just dive into. How important relics were, you know, during this time. So the dead of, or excuse me, the dead body of a holy person, for example, a pope, even though it was rotting flesh, as soon as he died, he was transformed into a holy relic. So he was looked at, like the body itself was looked at as a source of miraculous religious power. And now these relics were the center of Christianity at this time. If you're familiar with Martin Luther's 99, 95, that was bad, 95 theses. <laughs> Thank you, private school. Yeah, we only learned it for 14 years. Yeah, only had that literally hammered in my mind for <laughs> decades. Um, but the Catholic Church put a tremendous amount of, for lack of a better word, faith and power into anything that might be a relic. Like we talked about the Sphere of Destiny. Go listen to that episode back in the day. But... According to historian Lionel Rothkrug, and I quote here, 
Every church, every altar, every nobleman, every king, every monastery had a relic. Sometimes more than one of apparently the same relic. They were brought out to authenticate the work of Christian justice that they carried, and they were even carried out with armies. They were born in possession to encourage the dropping of crops as well. So, literally, a nobleman with, let's say, a finger of a pope would go out to a field, bury it in the field, and pray that the crops would go. Absolutely not. That's what the Confederados should have done in Brazil. (laughs) They just just needed a finger of Robert E. Lee. Uh, through the relics, uh, the different saints continues to be members of the community, hearing the pleas of petitioners, making crops grow, and basically responding to the needs of the people with divine intercession. So the Catholic Church, as well as the nobility, used these different relics as a way to consolidate power, basically distract people, basically saying, this is why I have the power, in, or why I have the land, blah, blah, blah. Because I have this little thingy. And now, it was for this reason, as well as just political reasons, like we mentioned with the papacy, that Stephen VI wanted to drag out Pope Formosa's... Yes. (laughs) I was going to say, I think you got it, right? (laughs) I got so in my head there. So it's for this reason why he wanted to literally drag his body out to basically undo all the different appointments, political appointments that... Uh, Pope Formosus did, but then to also basically insult and in, insult to injury, basically make his body no longer a relic, which is why he was thrown to a river with rags. This is like Seinfeld when Jerry tries to return the jacket out of spite, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, "I don't think you can return something for spite." <laughs> right? I don't think that's listed as an available reason to return. Yeah, but there you have it: the conclusion to one of the wildest court hearings i personally think of history where a dead man a man that was dead for nine months was dug up dressed up cleaned up a team of people had to prop him up on a throne and make him basically presentable and a jeff dunham was there yeah right (laughs) man the guy's timeless and a real life person had to do had to defend a corpse all for the name of the papacy. So, kind of wild. It's a bad day to be that lawyer. <laughs> Can you imagine? First day on the job. Really excited. Can't wait. Right. Oh, I have to defend a dead guy? <laughs> You're just... And he's a pope. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so this is going to be the most, like, for this time period, like, broadcasted trial of, like, all time. All right. Sick. Nice. Can you imagine? He's just enjoying. This is going to be stereotypical. I apologize. He's just enjoying a nice plate of spaghetti. And he gets a knock on his door, and it's just a centurion being like, hey, man, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> we, you got to go to the to the Vatican. I'm just glad that I can pretty much put the Italian music behind this entire story. If there's a way to do, like, even just a slight hint of, like, monks singing, that'd be <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can work out. But, no, mostly Italian music. That's a wild, that's a wild, wild tale. Yep. And again... Executive producer Dick Wolf. Are you ready for our last story? If it's as much of a roller coaster as your last one, um, I. It's not quite as wild, but it is still quite interesting. You know what? Let's do it. And it's Japanese stories, which I know you enjoy. Do I need to go get my. I'm literally looking at my katana right now. <laughs> Can I go get it? Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just holding on to it. 
So we're going to talk about the story of a man named Hiro Onoda. So Hiro Onoda was born on March 19th, 1922, and enlisted in the Imperial Japanese Army in 1940 and trained in Tokyo. He was trained for an elite commando unit where he learned guerrilla warfare, history, philosophy, propaganda, martial arts, among other things. I love how they snuck propaganda in there. Yeah, that's going to come in later. Right. So eventually he was sent to the Philippines towards the end of World War II on the island of Lubang. And he was sent there to sabotage airstrips and harbors there so that allied forces couldn't use them. But once he got there, his orders were overwritten, and he was told to help evacuate the men that were already there. So by February 28th, 1945, the Allied forces had invaded the island of Lubang, and most of the Japanese defenders were killed. Onoda survived, and his commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, gave him, th- and th- gave him three other men to take away with him and get, his- get these men off the island, pretty much. So. Anoda did not surrender when the war ended, and him and his comrades decided that they were still in charge of disrupting the enemy as much as possible on the island of Lubang, because he was under the impression that Japan would sooner be destroyed entirely before they would surrender to Allied forces. Because, as people mostly know about the Japanese during World War II, they were very intense. Yeah. Death before dishonor, very much. Yes. Uh, whether it was you know, a large island or just a little baby boy in the in the Pacific. They defended everything to the last man. Yes. And Dan Carlin does like a four-part series mm. on the East Asia Pacific Wars and stuff. So if you want to hear like 20 hours of someone who's probably done better research on this than me, you can go listen to that. But at this point, Anoda and his other three men heard of the surrender when a rogue cell of soldiers on the island showed them a leaflet that said that the war had been over for months, but Anoda decided that that was enemy propaganda, and he didn't believe it, because he had training in propaganda, so mm-hmm. he knew what people, what was lies and what was true in his own mind. So he, would, he said he would only surrender if his original commanding officer came and told him that the war was over and he could return home. So, him and his crew decided they were going to stay on Lubang, and they ended up tormenting the civilians there. And the farmers pretty much understood that there could just be a rogue gallery of four random Japanese men that could come out of the forest at any time and steal their cattle and burn their farm to the ground. Every time they saw them, they are like, frickin' again? <laughs> yeah, so you may be worried about, like, oh, maybe I'll get, like, a raccoon that buries into the side of my house and, like, infests my, my roof or whatever. It's just, or you could be worried about a group of four Japanese men in your forests that are just going to ransack your house. Right, from commando units, too. Yeah, literally <laughs> elite trained soldiers. Gosh, that's so that, that would suck. Just yeah. like minding your business, milking a cow, then all of a sudden, oh, Here four legitimate come. samurai. So eventually, one of the men with a nota named Yuichi Akatsu broke away from the group and surrendered to the Filipinos in 1950. And when he surrendered, he gave authorities info on the other three men, as, and then more leaflets, along with family photos from these three men, because they now knew who they were, were dropped onto the island. But the three men who found, eventually found these leaflets and photos dismissed these as well. So the next year, one of the men, named Private Soichi Shimada, was shot in the leg, 
Anoda eventually nursed him back to health, but Shimada was then shot dead by a search party in 1954. So he got nursed to health in the forests on an island where they're surviving on like bananas and coconuts by another soldier while they're just like scrounging for a life. And somehow he was able to survive a gunshot just to get shot like another, like a couple years later. Yeah. And to put this in perspective, Japan surrendered on September 2nd, 1945. Yeah. And this was nine years later. Yeah. They were doing this for close to a decade. At this point. At this point, yes. So the two remaining men, Anoda and a man named Kinshichi Kozuka, survived on fruit and stolen meat and rice. So in entirety, while they're on the island, they missed the Korean War, the entirety of the Beatles' career, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the moon landing, and most of the Vietnam War. And they were still in World War II in their own minds. That's absolutely... Like they're- home country japan looks completely different yeah at this point it's i mean the entire entire thing is different from the government to the economy that gives you an idea of like how long this time span was and yeah. how much went on in that time span so eventually after being caught raiding a rice silo by a police search party kinshichi kozuka was shot and killed so now anoda was alone but he continued on on his own Kozuka's body was flown back to Japan, and when it returned to Japan, the officials were shocked because they thought Anoda and Kazuka were long dead by that point. But now they had a reason to believe that the story that Onoda was alive was true. So while officials attempted to figure out how to get Onoda surrender almost 30 years after the war, because this was, by this point it was 1974... A man from Japan who was a supposed adventurer named Norio Suzuki decided he was going to go find him. So his reason was not just to go find Anoda, but in order, he left to Lubang to search for Anoda, a panda, and a yeti. In that order. Honestly, that's a solid list. Lofty goals. Right? You're going for old member of old war, a very fuzzy creature. And a probably career-changing discovery in the Yeti. That would be very scientifically groundbreaking. Yes. So on February 20th, 1974, Norio Suzuki somehow found Hiro Onoda. He was able to talk him down while he had a rifle pointed at him, pretty much by saying, like, I'm Japanese, I came to find you, I'm here to tell you that the war is over. So he told him that it was over, and Anoda requested that his original commanding officer come down and order him to surrender, or he would not surrender. So he was really sticking to his guns here. So officials then tracked down the old bookkeeper, Yoshimi Taniguchi, and he was flown to the Philippines to tell Anoda to surrender. I can't imagine what that call is like. Like, Yoshimi, we need you to get your man from... 30 years ago. Yeah, you've literally lived almost an entire life, like half of, pretty much half of a life. Yeah. Doing other things than war at this point. And now they're like, you need to go tell this guy to surrender. He said, he's calling your name. I don't know. Yeah. That is so impressive that this man, how did, how did Norio 
Suzuki find him so I, easily? I don't know. What were the Filipinos like search parties and police? Doing? I know. Then this random guy just shows up and finds him right away. Right. It's Maybe crazy. It's because he wasn't looking for him. Maybe it's like the room of requirement type I, deal. I don't know. But eventually he did surrender and Anoda returned to Japan, but he returned to an entirely different Japan because. From his perspective, he was stuck in a time capsule for 30 years and then eventually returned home. So when he got back, he really couldn't handle the new fast-paced lifestyle of Japan and ended up moving to Brazil. Shout out Brazil again. There we go. (laughs) So while he was there, he wrote a book about his time surviving in the Philippines and became a successful cattle rancher. So when he heard a story about a teenager in Japan who shot a I don't remember if it was like a school teacher or something similar to that but when he heard the story he decided it was his turn to move back to Japan and started a reform program with his wife for troubled youths because he said that they had become soft over the years that he was gone so he did that until his dying day on January 16th 2014 at the ripe age of 91 so that is great well honestly at least he got 60 years of non-war. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I mean, that is insane. Well, he got, he got like 40 years outside of the Philippines. Right. But, yeah, I mean, he's known as like the the man who fought 30 years longer than everyone else, so. That is absolutely insane. And, like, it, like it's a cool story, but mm-hmm. also like him and his men, I believe, killed like 30 Filipinos oh my between gosh. like that time span that they were there really? so it's not like they didn't do anything bad either so shocking that they let them i know just go. well they had so many police search parties go out and look for him and they yeah. just couldn't find him and then this random adventure is like i'll find him that's straight out of some sort of disney movie like, honestly yeah well i'm not the murdering 30 people but well It'll just be like something that they just mention briefly and then skip over. Oh, like yeah. the entire Native American genocide. They just kind of boop. they were like, we're just going to conveniently just not mention this from now to ever. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is the story of Hero Onoda. It's it's wild. That is like great stories. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, I think this is a really fun way to mix up from the. A little bit heavier topics, yeah, nice, I would say. Nice, easy, like short research on some topics that are maybe something that we wouldn't have talked about if we did like deep dive episodes all the mm-hmm. time. So, you know what? It's like a little mini sode. Yeah. That just happened to be an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mini. Right. I mean, we did cover six stories at that time. So, I mean, that's, that's that pretty good. Ooh, I can definitely see on our social medias. Oh, what, what social medias, you may ask? <laughs> you can find us. On Twitter, at gems underscore history, and on that handle, you will definitely find a post, and like we mentioned, for sure, for sure, for sure, whenever you see a box of Kellogg's, just take a picture, just attach it to it, and you'll make me laugh and kind of cry a little bit. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. But, like we mentioned, you can find us at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at Whatevskis. But didn't mean to glance over our little conclusion there, but really hope that you guys liked those episodes. I definitely love those little mini, mini stories of history. Right, because there's so many stories that we could cover that just aren't enough for a full episode. So 
we'll sprinkle these in every once in a while just to get a a little more diversity in there. Right, you know, mix it up a little bit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, guys, we will be back next week. I don't know what we're doing yet, but we'll be back with something. So look forward to that. Yes. And as I mentioned earlier, we might be having some stickers and stuff coming soon. So if you guys would be interested in something like that, figure out how to get those to you guys. I don't know. We'll probably only charge like a couple bucks for them, if anything, because... It's just a sticker, but it helps us get our name out there a little more. So go mm-hmm. plaster your towns with them. Yep. Every single piece of, you know, viable property, it needs a Gems of History sticker. Use a stall in a bathroom, slap a sticker on there. Right you where the toilet paper is. Go to a is. bar, slap a sticker on the door. See a baby, slap a sticker on its forehead. <laughs> <laughs> get the name out there. Get the name. Brand awareness. But yeah, that's all we got for you guys this week. Everyone have a great week this week, and we will talk to you later.